0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Heather Prescott on the show. We'll be talking about her new book, Student Bodies, the Influence of Student Health Services in American Society and Medicine. I don't know about you, but when I was in college, I visited the student health services a number of times. I remember once they fixed a finger that I had dislocated playing basketball, and another time... If I recall correctly, they gave me a cortisone shot in my ankle for an injury that I had gotten also playing basketball. You might conclude from this that basketball is not a safe sport. You might be right. So I was very happy that the Student Health Service was there to help me when I was injured. The history of Student Health Services is is quite a fascinating one. Uh, and it does obviously have to do with the health of students. Um, not in the way that we might think, though. And we should thank Heather for bringing this particular aspect of their history to the fore. Uh, it used to be the case that people thought that a college would damage you in all kinds of ways. Uh, it would make you less virile, and if you were a female, less fertile. And it was with this in mind that student health services were launched. Uh, and that's only the beginning. I really enjoyed talking to Heather, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Heather. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Good. You're in Connecticut, is that correct?
1: That's correct.
0: Connecticut, it's not a state that I have spent a lot of time in.
1: Well, you should come visit. It's a great state. I think
0: I should. I have friends from Connecticut. Well, I've spent some time there. Uh, We should tell our uh, listeners that we're talking to Heather Prescott today about her new book, Student Bodies, the Influence of Student Health Services in American Society in Medicine. It's just come out from the University of Michigan Press in Ann Arbor, where I used to live, by the way. And it's a very nicely produced book, and I enjoyed uh, reading it quite a bit. I have to say that I, I learned a tremendous amount from it, and I'm always shocked that um, the things I believe people didn't used to believe. (laughs) And that's one of the lessons of as a historian, that's sort of an embarrassing thing to admit, but um, it's really quite true in in this book. I mean, I think everybody has been to the Student uh, Health Center. I know that when I was an undergraduate, I went a few times, and I never uh, really thought to myself, why does this exist exactly? (laughs) But you explain it very well in the book, and we'll talk about that in a little while. Um what I'd like you to do, if you could now, is just say a few words about yourself and um, where you went to school, where you grew up, where you went to school, and how you came to write the book.
1: Sure. Yeah, I uh, was an undergraduate at the University of Vermont, and like you, I visited the health center frequently, having lots of upper respiratory infections and earaches and all sorts of aches and pains. and. The typical adolescent Mm -hmm. growing up issues that took me to the counseling center as well Mm -hmm. and the stress of college and so Mm -hmm. forth so like everybody who's gone to college i had first-hand experience with student health centers and When I was a student, I was interested in history and history of medicine. At one point, I wanted to be a physician, but Mm -hmm. history grabbed me in a way that medicine didn't seem to at the time. Mm So, I eventually, I worked my way to graduate school. I went to Cornell University, Mm -hmm. and I studied science and technology studies, Mm -hmm. which is an interdisciplinary program, but my focus was on history of medicine. And I worked with Joan Jacobs Brumberg, who you may be familiar with, Mm -hmm. who's written books on Her first book was on... Not her first book, but her second book was on... And best-known book is on the history of anorexia nervosa. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then she has also written a book called The Body Project, which is about adolescent girls and Mm -hmm. body issues, Mm -hmm. body image issues, and various ways that that girls have managed their bodies over the years.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And so that's how I got interested in adolescent, young adult issues and health issues in particular and my first book, my first dissertation and my first book was on the history of adolescent medicine Mm -hmm. and looking at that age group as a focus of medical care Mm -hmm. and how that intersected with large ideas about youth and the place of youth in American culture. Mm-hmm. So, Student Bodies in many ways is a continuation of my interest in the health of young people.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I see. Um, so, how did you come to write this book particularly? I mean, there's a lot of uh, terrain there. There's a lot of territory to cover. Why, why this in particular?
1: Well, like I said, I'd always been interested in... I mean, initially, I was going to do my dissertation on this topic and oh, then I, I just realized that it was such an enormous topic in terms of the scope, but also the travel to archives. Mm-hmm. My my first book was much more narrowly focused in terms of specialization, in terms of looking at the emergence of a very concrete, specific field, but also in terms of, of resources. I didn't have to travel as much to do that. So,
2: mm-hmm.
1: so the, the practical issue of getting from Ithaca to a dozen or more different college mm-hmm. archives was just beyond what I could do reasonably with mm-hmm. a dissertation, but mm-hmm. working in a college environment at a university and just being interested in student issues, not just in the classroom, but outside the classroom, having an interest in health and well-being of young people mm-hmm. that I work with every day,
0: mm-hmm.
1: it was kind of a natural progression into this particular project.
0: Mm -hmm. Well I mean it's terrific in that way because you know as professors we do deal with people with uh, various problems. The ones that are most salient to me are the psychological problems but I do see them sick all the time uh, and I always tell them to go to the student health services. I don't think that they do uh, but I tell them to do that and we have them here at Iowa obviously. So it turns out that the book is a terrific prism through which to see the history of a lot of different things in in American and I guess more general uh, history. Um, So let's uh, talk about the book uh, specifically now. Um, How did Student Health Services start?
1: Well, as I say in the book, the first persons or group to to have a focus on an, an interest in their health, let me see if I can put this a little bit better. When women students started to go to college, there was a major concern about the impact of higher education on the female body.
0: Yeah, I, th- I found and, this I found this extraordinary. This was the part that I really didn't <laughs> know
1: yeah, anything about. Know, most people <laughs> aren't aware of it. <laughs> they, they, and even People who study history of medicine <laughs> are not aware of some of these very, what we, to us is very strange theories that literally stated that. If you studied too much, you wrecked your reproductive organs. Yeah, no, it was re- it really... It, re- taking it took energy away from from women's bodies uh, during adolescence, and they would become sterile or hysterical or both. And yeah. so these kinds of fears about the impact of education on women's minds and bodies directed attention towards their health in ways that just weren't... Directed towards male bodies at least initially. So, yeah,
0: I found that so part he, of the book. Yeah, I was going to say I, th- I found that part of the book incredibly fascinating because you know you mentioned a lot of people who are you know university presidents and provosts and what we would think of as right-thinking people from the Northeast who disliked slavery and thought that you know racism was bad and you know all of these other things that we still hold true today. But when they come to talk about women going to college, they are uh, almost speak in one voice and say that uh, somehow the college experience will damage them. And I found that just absolutely – how did they – why did they think this?
1: Well, I think it's just because of pervasive ideas about gender, and some of it has to do with evolutionary theory and the notion that women are less less evolved than men. Mm -hmm. Some of it has to do with medical theories about conservation of energy, Mm -hmm. that if you use one area of the body too much you're drawing energy from another area of the body mm-hmm. and this is particularly bad during adolescence mm-hmm. when if you're drawing nervous energy away from the developing reproductive organs and that's particularly dangerous for women now there's a concern about men as well which i go into in, in the second chapter in the book where there's a concern that men who use their brains too much their bodies are becoming weak and mm-hmm. unfit and mm-hmm. they're not going to be able to survive in the struggle for competition and, mm-hmm. Compete with other countries and the Olympics and things like that. So. Yeah,
0: that, that entire social Darwinist background was I, I, was really quite how, you know, I understood that it was uh, you know something that people thought about and they thought in terms of the struggle between different peoples, but I didn't know that it had actual policy implications outside things like immigration, right. where it was overdetermined by a lot of different things. But here, right. here these ideas are actually put into practice.
2: Right. by, exactly. by these yeah. people who,
0: again, I mean, I look at these names and I'm like, yeah, well, that was a smart person right there, <laughs> but they're saying right. this completely ridiculous thing. And the, another kind of interesting aspect of it, and I thought you might talk about this a little bit, is um, the, they had some statistics to back up what they were saying, but I think it's a, it's a good example of sort of how statistics can mislead. You know the statistics I'm talking about? This is about, I guess, fertility among, uh, uh, among highly educated women,
1: Right. Yeah. And and part of it has to do with the fact that college women were either not marrying at all or marrying later than women who did not go to college. And Mm -hmm. that's, I think, true pretty much from the beginnings of women's higher education on into today. Mm -hmm. So, So... Uh, People like Teddy Teddy Roosevelt were seeing college women reproducing, white women, upper-class women reproducing in fewer numbers than immigrants Mm -hmm. and African Americans and saying, oh, my God, the white race is going to die out and Mm -hmm. will no longer be a major imperial power on Mm -hmm. the world stage. And so that's the sort of thing that's feeding, in part, this concern about protecting female bodies. And then, of course, there really are genuine... uh, and I'm not using this flippantly or anything, but there are legitimate health concerns mm-hmm. such as one of the major diseases affecting young people at this time is tuberculosis, and it's a mm-hmm. type of disease that's spread very easily through mm-hmm. close contact and dormitories and living situations. So there really are health issues, concrete health issues, that are also at play as well, and so a concern about how to build the bodies of young people to maintain their health is is also behind this as well.
0: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think... As I understood the book, and and again, one of these things that I think doesn't hurt to remind people and even to have myself reminded is that prior to the – I'm going to make up a date here – prior to the 1850s, generally speaking, women in the United States did not go to college. That's correct. Right. Um, In other words, the colleges, the the traditional colleges that had been founded in the 18th century, 17th, 18th century, did not accept women. And it was only – I guess it was only with the founding of uh, the, the women's colleges in the 1860s, was it? They were right, first, first, first yeah, college.
1: there were a few co-educational colleges. Oberlin is one of the ones that stands out mm-hmm. and it has partly to do with their abolitionist and progressive social thinking on the issue. But initially the women were brought in to do the housekeeping for the men. Mm-hmm. Oberlin was a working college, and so male students would, had a farm and they would take care of the various outdoor work that needed to be done around the campus mm-hmm. and this was done partly to save money and partly because the founders of Overland believed that work in the great outdoors was a way to build young men's character mm-hmm. and to keep them physically fit and mm-hmm. then they realized that well who's going to take care of the laundry and the cooking and the mending and so forth so mm-hmm. they brought in so they brought in women students mm-hmm. partly for that reason and partly because they did believe in female education and there was a great need for public school teachers at this time, and because you could get away with paying a woman less than a man, Mm -hmm. women were a natural fit to fill this big demand for
0: public school teachers. Yeah, I don't know if this is true or not. I used to, I spent some time at uh, Harvard University, um, and part of the lore around there is that that circa 1900, that men would bring their manservants with them to college. Is that true?
1: Yes, (laughs) it's absolutely true, and uh <laughs> southern students would bring their slaves so you had sl- you had slaves on the Harvard campus yeah. and yeah it's it's really uh, it's not lord
0: absolutely <laughs> yeah, true that's that's just another world i can't i can can't, I just can't yeah, imagine it is, that. Yeah. yeah it really is another world it doesn't surprise me but um what was the if you could just answer a, a question that that uh, it 's not directly addressed in the book, but I was interested what was the the impetus behind the founding of these women 's colleges and I guess we should name some of the ones i 'm most familiar with or Smith because my my wife is from Northampton actually. And and then there's uh, Wellesley, and you can name. Vassar also, and yeah. so
1: forth. Well, the founder of Vassar believed that women should have the same educational opportunities as men.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That they should have. There should be a Harvard for mm-hmm. women. Mm-hmm. Now, they didn't. He didn't necessarily support coeducation, but he believed that women's institutions should be. Equal to men in terms of Academic rigor mm-hmm. and, and opportunity So Vassar was very academically Was very self-consciously Modeled after after The elite men's colleges mm-hmm. So, so in, in one sense The founders of Vassar and Smiths and Wellesley And Bryn Mawr and all of the seven sister schools mm-hmm. Believed that women deserve The same education as men But they also believed That are, are feared really that that education might damage the female mind and the body, so mm-hmm. they they know they're aware that they're engaging in a educational experiment
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and then there's new ideas about marriage that the marital ideal is that women should be partners at least intellectual partners with men this doesn't mean that women should have careers necessarily, but the Ideal for middle class marriage is for the wife to be educated Mm -hmm. and uh, an intellectual companion for her husband, and also as the first educators that she will have, wives will have adequate knowledge to educate their children, to raise their children according to new scientific principles about child rearing and Mm -hmm. child health and um, Mm -hmm. child behavior and so forth. Mm -hmm. So there's so there's a, there's a belief that women deserve to be highly educated, at least women of certain classes and races, and mm-hmm. I went to that later on in the book, but mm-hmm. also the purpose of female education isn't necessarily to give women an equal status within society, but to improve their roles as wives and mothers.
0: Mm-hmm. In yeah, one sometimes hears this expression, and I don't really understand it. I'm not an American historian, and I, I study actually the where I did study the medieval and early modern period, but one has this notion of a finishing school. What is that?
1: Well, it depends on who you ask, but if you look at the origins of Women's education in general And here I'm talking about what were At the time called female academies mm-hmm. Which tended to be somewhere Between a modern day high school And and Maybe a junior college Or sometimes more, they varied from location To location, but There was an understanding in the early Republic that women Women's roles The, the term used was republican motherhood And mm-hmm. there was idea that In order to raise Good citizens i e sons who would go on to be political leaders or at least educated citizens who were informed about American democratic principles and could uh, vote intelligently and um, and govern intelligently, that women had to be educated enough mm-hmm. so that they could raise their sons to be good citizens, and then, of course, raise their daughters to be good republican mothers. Mm-hmm. so so the earliest educational institutions for women. Some of them were quite rigorous, such as Troy Female Seminary had math and science Mm -hmm. education that was at least as good as some of the male colleges at the time.
0: And this was in the 18th century?
1: Yeah, this was in the late 18th, early 19th century. Others were more geared towards the decorative arts, so women would learn things to make them good hostesses, to make them... Uh, pleasant spouses. So they'd learn some French, they'd learn some music, they'd Mm -hmm. learn some art and so forth. So some of the schools, yeah, definitely were aimed at giving women the social graces to make good marital matches and to be good entertainers. Others were geared towards giving women more educational opportunities. A lot of the academies and what were called normal schools at the time were aimed at providing education for women so they could become teachers
2: mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm,
1: or, mm-hmm. or foreign mission missionaries mm-hmm. or both.
0: Mm-hmm. So was the drive to create women's colleges in the 1860s a rejection of that model?
1: In some ways, I think, you know, particularly vaster and even more so very um, uh, very prestigious women's colleges of that sort, Bryn Mawr, I'm thinking of in particular, Mm -hmm. were really aimed at providing an educational institution that was identical to the male colleges. And Mm -hmm. Bryn Mawr was very interested in creating a college for women that was similar to the German university model, Mm -hmm. that was based on research,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that was based on... Um, keeping current with the most recent developments in mm-hmm. science and philosophy and so forth. So, mm-hmm. so the women's colleges were definitely meant to be an improvement over the normal schools, over mm-hmm. the academies and so forth.
0: Mm-hmm. When they were founded, was there any thought given to these special needs, and I, that's in air quotes, these special needs of uh, Women at these institutions or was Yeah, that definitely elated? and
1: there's there's a concern not only about their health but also about there's also the subtext about their their um, their moral safety or, or to put it in another way. if these women are living on their own without the protection of family, what's going to happen happen to them? so mm-hmm. if you look at the student handbooks from the late nineteenth century, there's all sorts of rules about male visitors about curfews about um, some colleges would weigh their students periodically to make sure they were eating correctly there's big concern that today we were concerned about overweight right well yeah. in the 19th century there's concern that that women aren't gaining weight fast enough or they're mm-hmm. losing weight in college and this is a sign that they're in in poor health my mother-in-law who went to and also my mother as well they both went to nursing school in the early 1960s and they both remember being weighed and measured every month or so to make sure that they were not losing weight mm-hmm. or gaining weight and by the early 1960s the concern is about getting too heavy but my mother was too skinny and they kept telling her to eat more mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Uh, but that was a way to monitor their health and nursing students like medical students were at risk for various communicable diseases mm-hmm. and even in the early 1960s there's still a concern about tuberculosis um, and contracting various diseases that could could damage the health
0: so was it in the context of these women's colleges that the um, movement toward a kind of more uh, inclusive and interventionist uh, medical stance towards students uh, is born
1: yes I, I would say that in many ways the women's colleges were the model for that the health the health services the attention to the overall health of the student, even though it kind of grew out of this paternalistic notion about protecting women from either from educational dangers, social dangers, or moral dangers, or whatever, served as the model for uh, preventive medicine mm-hmm. for um, students more generally.
0: Mm-hmm. Was there a particular figure who was important here? Um. In terms of the women's colleges? Yeah, in terms of the women's colleges, we are just very early in the development of, uh, of student but, health services. You know, services. there's a
1: number of different physicians. Um, there's And then there's also, of course, the coeducational institutions as well, one of the um, people who stands out in terms of coeducation. And many of the coeducational colleges or universities had female physicians that is female physicians serving the, the women students mm-hmm. long before they had the same thing for male students, and again, it's, it grows out of a concern about the effects of higher education on women's bodies. Mm-hmm. So, one person that stands out is Kalia Dual Mosier at Stanford University, who was well known for her. She's probably well known among American historians for her her research on. What was called the Mosher study, which is a study of female sexuality in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. She surveyed a very small number of her female patients and asked them about when did they, when did, when, when was their age of first intercourse? Mm-hmm. Did they have an orgasm? Things like that. And this was very radical for you the know, late 19th century. It's sort of like um, if you see pictures of her, she looks like this very, um, very strict. Uh, traditional Victorian woman, and then you look at the kinds of questions she was asking <laughs> her female patients, and it's like the Kinsey study. So, um, so she, so historians have looked at those surveys and and argued that Victorians were perhaps not quite as Victorian as we thought they were. That their mm-hmm. that their sexual practices um, were perhaps closer to ours than we'd like to think, or at least closer to. The early 20th century than than we'd like to think. So so she's well known for that, but she also was well known for her research on menstruation, on the impact of of exercise on improving female health mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. So mm-hmm. she's a figure that stands out. Another person I talk about a lot is Ruth Boynton, who was at University of Minnesota. She's a bit later. She's 1920s, 1930s, and she was a well-known physician and researcher. And there's even a prize named after her in Mm -hmm. the American College Health Association. So, Mm -hmm. in terms of women's health, those are a couple of people who stand out. And then there's Dorothy Farabee, who was an African American physician at Howard University, and Howard University and the the historically black colleges and universities are kind of interesting because you see some of the same anxieties about women's bodies, except that you also have this layer of racial prejudice Mm -hmm. and oppression um, Mm
2: -hmm.
1: placed upon upon this as well. And so you see some of the same concerns and protections Mm -hmm. for women students at the historically black colleges but at the same time, there's also a need to counteract stereotypes about African Americans as being more diseased mm-hmm. than than whites that um, there's this notion in particular that African Americans are more vulnerable to venereal they're more likely to have venereal diseases as they say they call sexually transmitted diseases mm-hmm. at the time mm-hmm. um, so um so there's a a need to protect and improve the health of African-American students and African-American women in particular, but also there's, an, there's also this um, concern that by drawing attention to the health needs of students that physicians will, in fact, be perpetuating stereotypes mm-hmm. about African-Americans as being diseased mm-hmm. Or, mm-hmm. or vulnerable, mm-hmm. so they're kind of in a catch-22 in some regards.
0: What exactly did these pioneers want to do? What sort of platform did they have?
1: Uh, well, the, the key thing that really drives the student health services, and this is in some ways runs against the grain of ma- mainstream medicine, is, is preventive medicine mm-hmm. to prevent disease, to um, draw attention to the total environment of the student to prevent against disease where, uh, and to um, uh, look at, not just at the individual student, but the larger envir- social environment, the larger coll- college environment. And this mm-hmm. kind of is a, quite different from medicine that's geared so much towards curing disease once it occurs, mm-hmm. and, coll- and the college health centers were interested in monitoring student health through physical education classes. Through periodic health exams, they, along with the insurance industry, are the first to advocate for regular health checkups mm-hmm. to, make, to detect disease early and to correct problems before mm-hmm. they become, um, become they become uh, out of control. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's uh, what, there's one section in the book where I talk about how student health centers become. Engaged in this battle with the American Medical Association and other physician organizations, which believe that they are stealing patients from.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask. Them. I was going to ask about precisely that because I, I didn't know this. Um, I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask you because I know it because I've read your book. But um, I'll have you tell our listeners how exactly was uh, medical care provisioned before student health centers.
1: Typically, a student was left on his or her own to find a physician. <laughs> So, you got and this is particularly true of male students, um but even you know some colleges and universities, this particularly coeducational institutions basically left students on their own when it came to these sorts of things. So if a student got sick, they'd go and find a physician in the community or they'd go home and see their family physician. This is an era before health insurance as well
2: mm-hmm.
1: so um. So, uh, you'd have so typically, you'd have a student living far from home, and this is particularly true on rural campuses like Dartmouth, which is one of the ones I focus on, mm-hmm. um, or uh, um, even campuses that are in relatively large metropolitan areas like um, Harvard,
2: mm-hmm.
1: where there's lots of physicians. Typically, what would happen is, and this happens with young people today, too, is they'd wait until they were on death's door before they'd actually go and see a physician. And <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> so part of it's because, you know, denial, I don't want to go see a physician, but also there's the money issue. How do you pay for a physician's services yeah. if you don't have an income? Yeah. Um, so, and that's something that students face today if they don't have health insurance.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. I, I was just laughing because I, I've had so many students come into my office, and just I, I hate to say it, but the first thought that comes to my mind is, I hope I don't get whatever they have.
2: Yeah, I know. I have my, I have my um, Purell and my,
1: right. uh, and my hanker and my Kleenex and everything. So yes, yeah, if, if I, yeah, a student comes in my office and they're and they're um, got a runny nose and I have exactly. any sort of um yeah. contact with them, I have I get out the hand sanitizer. Yeah.
0: I tell them not to come to class when they're sick. I just like it's not worth it. send me an email. tell me you're sick. I'm going to believe you it'll be fine
1: right yeah i I tend to, uh, yeah,
0: exactly. unless it's
1: like six weeks out of the semester that's like, oh, you've had you <laughs> had the flu for six weeks. Can you please tell me yeah, no <laughs> get sure. a note from your doctor but it's and lot of the one of the things I hope to do with the book is show that some of the, a lot of the problems that we have today aren't aren't new, and to give some examples of how health professionals in the past have managed or in some cases mismanaged various student health issues and, yeah, and no, provide I... some models for what people can do today.
0: Yeah, I think you do that marvelously. Let me go back to the um, the physicians who were almost all male at the time, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you point out in the book that they, they quite strenuously resisted uh, the foundation or expansion of these institutions. Why did they do
1: that? Uh, I don't understand your question. In
0: other words, the the physicians who were in the communities, like around Harvard, who were in Boston, who were so on and so forth, they resisted the uh, creation of student health services.
1: Yeah, because they because they saw it, they saw them as competition. They saw they one I forget exactly how it's put, but they see this as a socialized form of medicine because it's providing. It's uh, student health centers are. A monopoly on student health care that uh, and sometimes the student health centers are staffed by physicians from a medical school mm-hmm. so physicians from say the medical school associated with University of Pennsylvania are they have their practice in the medical school and they're also seeing patients at Penn mm-hmm. and physicians in Philadelphia are saying hey wait a minute you had you, you not only have a monopoly on care it At the hospital, but you also have this other patient practice, and we want to have an opportunity to to see these patients. So a lot of it has to do with competition for for uh, patient fees. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, some of these students can't afford a position, so um, so the student health centers are providing Mm -hmm. care for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford medical care, and some of the some of the uh, student health centers, and this is particularly true in California, have case studies at Stanford and at, the, at UC Berkeley where it's the students who are, by and large, leading the way in terms of demanding healthcare, affordable health care. Mm-hmm. And at Stanford, the students start a, a guild where they set aside students to pay a couple of dollars a year. Mm-hmm in a sickness fund, and then it soon becomes apparent that the sickness fund can't keep up with the number of students who are ill, and so the university takes that over and takes on that responsibility. But the physicians in Palo Alto were outraged because the univer- they saw the university as, as monopolizing medical care, and mm-hmm. they wanted, um, uh, they didn't like that, they wanted to be able to have um, an opportunity to treat uh, treat
0: students. Sure, sure. So we've talked a lot about um, women and how they were important, or at least care for women. Again, care in air quotes. Mm-hmm. Uh, for women was important uh, for the foundation of the first um, institutions of this type. Mm-hmm. Uh, how were people concerned about uh, men and their bodies at the same time? Because you point out in the book that also, you know, a lot of physicians are saying that college is dangerous for men as well.
1: Right. Yeah. again, some of that is, is um, the subtext is concerns about uh, male morality, sexual health. There's... Um, uh, and some some of the reports I've looked at are a bit more upfront about concerns about sexually transmitted diseases, and uh, but also there's this, these, these psychological or rather um, neurological ideas about um, deviant sexual practices, particularly homosexuality and and what they call self abuse or masturbation. Mm-hmm. So um, so that that there is a there is a sexual subtext running through that. But one of the one of the things driving this. Uh, the concern with male bodies is the military, and mm-hmm. studies starting of male soldiers during the Civil War shows that the health of young men is not what is optimal for a mm-hmm. country that's aspiring to um, aspiring to prominence on a on a world stage. And so, um, some of the findings of the U.S. Sanitary Commission during the Civil War show that. That men's bodies need improvement, and this runs that the that health issues and physical fit problems with physical fitness run across class lines, in other words, mm-hmm. men who you would expect because of their upbringing and their social opportunities and socioeconomic status, in fact don't have as good a health as you would expect. Mm-hmm. And so that that prompts the men's colleges to start paying attention to. To men's health, and um, and then there's and there's concerns about epidemic disease. Um, this is an era before antibiotics. This mm-hmm. is an era before um, a lot of vaccines mm-hmm. and other medical inven- uh, interventions that mm-hmm. we take for granted today. And so, many of the ways to prevent illness was to and to um, promote healthy practices, to promote physical fitness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: to um, eliminate hazards from the environment.
0: Yeah, I was, um, actually, and I think the listeners will be interested in this, uh, athletics played an, an, a, a pretty important role in uh, sort of turn-of-the-century curricula. Uh, right. Yeah, could you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that's something that, um, to the sort of modern ear, sounds very strange.
1: Well, there's, um, well, it, it depends on how you look at it. I mean, they're, from the beginnings of college athletics, the physicians, the, the professors are saying that. Uh, because this, a lot of this is controlled by students and alumni, that this is taking attention away from the legitimate function of colleges and universities, i.e. the classroom. And mm-hmm. what well, you see physicians be- becoming concerned about our high rates of injury. It wasn't unusual to have... Two or three people on a football team either suffer major major injury or even die because mm-hmm. of injuries as before helmets and, yeah. pads and so forth. So, so physicians are concerned about uh, in sports injuries. Um, they're concerned about the fact that athletics spends a lot of money to on a very few um, few individuals. Mm-hmm and they want to see more money spent on improving the physical fitness of the student body Mm -hmm. as a whole. There's um, conflicts between students who have one idea about what it means to be athletic and and having a healthy body, and then you have physicians and physical educators with different ideas Mm -hmm. um, about, um, about male athleticism in particular. And so there's there's competition between in particular between physicians and coaches about who has the right to oversee student bodies mm-hmm. student athletes mm-hmm. and um and so that's kind of uh part of the um part of what's running through all the some of the concerns about um corruption in college athletics um, mm-hmm. the, you know gambling and so th- those are present from.
0: Pretty much the 1880s onward. Were, were there phys ed requirements for graduation at these places?
1: Yeah, a lot of schools had. Um, I think that's probably, the shocking
0: part. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Some of, uh, Johns Hopkins, for example, you had. I think at one point you had to take one or two and ten. That you had to take one or two years of physical education and. Um, Today now well I don't know about about Iowa but students here have to think have to take a semester of, of or maybe it's a year of PE I forget they have to I think they have to have two or three credits
0: so I don't know
1: physical education um, or wellness class or something like that yeah but, I've
0: not I've not looked into that because yeah, know, but, especially in places here like Iowa you know because athletics is an entire world unto itself at right, a, a Big yeah. Ten University. I mean, the people right. who we bring here to do athletics are so incredibly unusual in every way. <laughs> you, know, right. you, you see these football players, for example, or basketball players they just don't look like any of the rest of us. Um, yeah. And uh, so that there's this kind of notion that there's athletics and there's... Mm. Everything that everybody else does, yeah. So it's
1: that's co- not that's not new.
0: Yeah, uh, no. I imagine I imagine it's not at all. So maybe you could talk a little bit about. Was there a takeoff point for um, student health services? Was there a moment at which sort of colleges just started to adopt them one after another very quickly?
1: Well, by the 1920s and 1930s, there's um, some of some of the colleges that and universities that are trying to compete with each other for students from across the country. It's pretty much in the early 20th century where um, a lot of colleges, a lot of the private universities, I'm thinking of Penn for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: start to want look beyond the immediate area of Philadelphia and its suburbs mm-hmm. to try and attract students from across the country. Mm-hmm. And so having a student health center is a way to assure parent, reassure parents who are sending their naive
2: mm-hmm. and
1: inexperienced young sons and daughters mm-hmm. off to college that they will be protected, that they will have as much attention to their health and well-being as that they would have in their own homes. Mm-hmm. And what's going on in the 1920s and 1930s, of course, is that middle-class parents in particular are um, bringing their children to the pediatrician, this is when pediatrics takes off. Mm-hmm. Um, where the notion of regular health checkups, vaccinations, well child care bringing in the in the child for regular checkups, not when <laughs> just when he or she is sick to prevent um various childhood illnesses is coming into play. and so once these children reach the age of college, their parents are still want to make sure that their children are receiving adequate attention to their health. So um, in one of the popular journals that the American Medical Association published in the 1930s called Hygieia, there are a series of articles about one of the things you should check out before you send your son to college is the health center mm-hmm. and is it is it, does it have enough physicians? Are they paying attention to mm-hmm. um various aspects of health. And Mm -hmm. this, again, is is following a major world war where the rate of rejection of male recruits is something like 30 percent. And, of course, it's um, lower income individuals, African-Americans, who are rejected at higher rates. But there's also this finding that American men in general are in poor health and we've got to do something to improve the health of young people, and then the influenza epidemic of 1918-1919. Right. Um, you know, that that's often a forgotten episode in the history, uh, in U.S. history, but I, the publications I saw from the early 1920s, every single one of them says, look, we had this major epidemic, a lot of people were unprepared for it, mm-hmm. this shows, like any other, that we need to improve the um the health services for students
0: Mm -hmm. so would you say in general that uh these student health services were kind of part of the leading edge of uh i don't exactly know how to put it but sort of cradle to grave management of people's lives and bodies by physicians one of the reasons i asked this is that I, i i didn't really think about this until you mentioned it but i literally just took my son to the doctor today he's nine months old and i think he's he's been to the doctor five times or something, nine months, five times. They have us come all the time.
2: Yeah, that's they, typical. They weigh
0: him yeah. and <laughs> measure his head. And, well, the reason you know. for that, and, and I don't know how much you want to go into
1: the, the history of pediatrics, I mean, so much of that grows out of um, the early 20th century interest in preventing all sorts of major childhood diseases. And at the turn of the 20th century, the the infant and child mortality rate was
2: mm-hmm.
1: what it's like in in the developing world mm-hmm. now and so so those periodic checkups were intended to make sure that a child was well part, part of it was to vaccinate against various mm-hmm. childhood diseases but also to monitor growth to make sure a child was hitting mm-hmm. various um Developmental markers. Yeah, but. we know
0: we know those by heart. Yeah, of
1: course. <laughs> <laughs> and you probably freak out when you're telling. Yeah, sure, of course. Yeah, no, it's yeah, uh, so. no.
0: They've really, they've really, uh, they've got us coming and uh, going. But so to
1: answer, to get back to your question, yeah, I think it. You know, some people say that medicine has expanded too far beyond its boundaries, but I think that in terms of prevent, it's, I think it's much more cost-effective to prevent disease yeah, sure. than to treat it. Sure. Sure. So. I think that the more opportunity you have to catch disease or even pre disease at an early stage, the better sure. and it's particularly important for children and teenagers where you can reverse and young and even young adults where you can reverse the course mm-hmm. of chronic disease where you can or you can intervene in bad health practices right. such as a lot of what. A lot of what student health centers try to do, anyways, is to encourage what they call wellness. Mm-hmm. And that's not the term they used in the early days, but a lot of what they were doing was to um, encourage people to exercise regularly, mm-hmm. to eat a balanced diet, to get enough sleep, to mm-hmm. uh, to either um, you see the first anti-smoking. Mm-hmm. Um uh diatribes really um, mm-hmm. I mean there's a concern about the moral impact of smoking and that mm-hmm. smoking leads to other bad habits like gambling and drinking and mm-hmm. prostitution and so forth mm-hmm. but there's there's also concern with the impact of alcohol abuse um, you know there's some stuff about marijuana from the nineteen thirties not much um, what, what? so a lot of the, a lot of the concerns about alcohol about um overeating or undereating, a lot of things we see today, we saw 100 years ago.
0: Yeah, so we we talk about that as wellness, and we have a wellness center, I believe, here at the University of Iowa, uh, and uh, d- did they call it hygiene? Yes, yeah.
1: gen- hygiene was the term. Yeah, hygiene is a term that occurs, and that usually typically means preventive health. Yeah. So you see the term hygiene, that means prevention.
0: Um and how do so, how do they get people to actually to get on you talk about this in the book so it's a kind of a leading question the uh how do they get people on board with um prophylactic care of uh, sort of taking care of their own their 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 bodies it's prior to tricky um, yeah. for
1: anyone it's tricky for anyone for students that's why there's physical there's they, have, they have, that students are required to take physical fitness classes to take um to take health education mm-hmm. classes um, what physicians and health educators found is that unless you required people to do something, they didn't do it. Yeah. It's no different for adults. I mean, yeah. a lot of people don't follow advice about consumption of fats or the minimum mm-hmm. amount of exercise you should have per day mm-hmm. or um, the maximum amount of alcohol you should drink in a in a particular day. Mm-hmm. So, so in many ways, um, health centers like medicine and gen- preventive medicine in general are battling human behavior, the, the human behavior and human mm-hmm. nature, and trying to um, change health habits. But the hope was that um, educating people, uh, young people in high school, in college, or even starting in elementary school, the proper health habits that these habits would be maintained across. Mm-hmm. The life
0: course. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm not sure it's worked so. here, but yeah. <laughs> I, know, I don't know where you are. But I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, right. I admire the effort. I really do. Yeah. Uh, the, so um, maybe we could talk a little bit. A, it's a you know, again, as a, as a professor, one of the things that I see and I think most of my students are quite healthy physically, but mentally, I don't. I'm not quite sure. Um, at what point did um, the notion of mental health or caring for the mind become part of the program of student health services?
1: the 1920s and again this is grows partly out of what was called the mental hygiene movement Mm -hmm. of the start around the 19 well literally 19 teens and even more so after the First World War Mm -hmm. there was a move the mental hygiene movement was a movement to take psychiatry outside of mental hospitals Mm -hmm. and to look at preventing Minor uh, to intervene in, in terms of minor mental health issues before they um, became more disastrous Some or more th- severe, mm-hmm. and so you see programs to detect and prevent psychological programs in the schools mm-hmm. and colleges and the community. You see Attempts to change child-rearing practices. There's um, this is when Freud comes and various psychoanalytic and psychosocial models of child development and personality development come in. And mm-hmm. so, um, so the notion that many, even severe mental illnesses, can be prevented or at least, um, at least mitigated by early intervention starts to come in around the 19 teens. And then the incidents, high incidence of shell shock and psychological mm-hmm. disorders during the First World War also draws attention to how do we prevent these various forms of nervous disorders. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really in the 1920s that mm-hmm. um, that a lot of these programs get started, and and it, and they're ba- and the mental hygiene programs are battling these entrenched notions that. Well, students who have psychological problems they're just wimps, you know right. they can't cut it, and yeah. so we're just you know the way to deal with students who are nervous or anxious or um, having difficulty is to just let them flunk out that right. we you know if they can't they can't cut it, then they don't belong here survival
0: of the fittest so <laughs> <to say>. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah, right.
1: um, and so I know some of the 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 strongest opponents um, are critics of of mental hygiene programs are, not surprisingly, professors at some of the Ivy League
0: colleges. Yeah, that doesn't surprise Um, me at all. Uh, So at what point did um, this movement to intervene early and often, which I think you're right, uh, we've known for a long time, is very effective at preventing illnesses of both the physical and mental type, run up against the notion of privacy and student rights? Because this is something in my own work that I run up against with FERPA and all these other regulations that, sure. you know, uh, So, at what point did that become a kind of lively issue?
1: Well, that's something that grows out of student activism in the 1960s and 1970s. And especially in terms of mental health, it was not unusual, say, if a young man was applying for a job in a public school for the mental hygiene or a psychiatrist person to say well you know i think this young man might be a homosexual so i don't think he should
2: uh-huh.
1: be employed in a public school or right. um or for or say a young again this is um typically um there's con- more concerns about male homosexuality than mm-hmm. female sexuality or say a young person is having having psychological problems it wasn't unusual for the psychiatrist to contact the dean or even the parents to yeah. say well yeah. Um, you know, maybe this person doesn't belong in school, and um, and so students started to say, "Look, you know, this is invading our privacy and our rights as an adults." And so, some of the pro um, and some of the um, if you look at the student protest movements of the '60s and '70s, some campus psychiatrists are saying, "Well, these are just these are just immature people who mm-hmm. are who are acting out their whatever their their late adolescent." Rebellion, mm-hmm. And we couldn't make much note of this. And then there's others, psychiatrists and physicians are saying, no, they have legitimate complaints about American society. And one of the complaints they had was being treated as though they are overgrown children and not autonomous adults. And so so FERPA, this is the Family Education, what is it? Um, Rights and education?
0: Privacy Act.
1: The Privacy Act of 1972.
0: 70, 74. So yeah, whenever well, it 74, was. 74. Okay, I don't know.
1: Yeah, um, whatever (laughs) Uh, early 1970s was an outgrowth in part of students demanding rights to privacy some of this has to do with um, privacy in terms of sexual behavior contraception reproductive health in general and um being able to go to a college health center and get birth control without the physician notifying your parents or asking your parents for permission to give you the birth control pill or something like that, or to be uh, treated without parental permission.
0: Um,
1: or if you go to see a psychiatrist, you're not worried about being reported to the dean or to right. um, or whatever. So yeah. now, of course, what we're seeing in, after Virginia Tech and northern Illinois is... Um, calls to have more surveillance of students with
0: mental health issues. Yeah, I mean it's a very thorny issue and I I have I have run up against it in my own work as a as a professor and administrator because there are moments at which I would actually like to contact the parents of students but FERPA prevents me from doing it obviously. I mean, one of the things that FERPA did perhaps unintentionally was really give teeth to the notion that when you're 18 you're an adult. Yeah. And that's that. Uh, right. But we know that in practice, uh, in modern America, I won't speak more globally, that 18 and 19 year olds, I hope no 18, 19 year olds are listening, are not adults.
1: <laughs> it, really depend, it really depends on the individual. I yeah. mean, I've seen 18, 19 year olds who are very mature, and then I've seen 28 year olds who are very immature. So um, individuals develop at different rates. But what I see happening, and maybe this is because I've been a department chair, is parents who just can't let go they're called helicopter, helicopter
0: parents, parents, parents yeah. who just
1: can't let go of their children they're so used accustomed to what i lack of a better word meddling
2: yeah
1: no. <laughs> um you know every, every time their child gets a bad grade yeah. or something goes wrong they're used to calling up the principal or the guidance counselor or whatever mm-hmm. and so i've had to deal with parents who want to register their students they want their students um, ID or mm-hmm. PIN number so they can register for courses and I right. say no yeah. right. they have to learn how to do that themselves and you know they're 18 they should learn how to they should be responsible for picking their classes and if they can't do it themselves then maybe they don't belong in college yet maybe they should should wait until they have mm-hmm. enough um, maturity to be able to because if they can't register for classes by themselves, how are they going to re- take responsibility no, for right. other aspects
0: of their? I'm in complete agreement. Obviously, yeah, that's the case. So what? What? Um, I, I don't. This is, may sound a little bit off the wall, but what? What? Impact has the increase in the amount of money that is necessary in order to take care of someone—that is healthcare costs. What? What impact has it had on student health services and on tuition in general? Do you know?
1: Um. Well, in general, I I guess there's several answers to that. It's made it much more difficult for young people to get adequate care, and this isn't this is true of young adults in general, not just those in college. Mm -hmm. But um, I think 18 to 25 year olds are among the most poorly insured Mm -hmm. Americans, and once you hit 18, you're no longer eligible for mm-hmm. CHIP programs and right. things like that. Yeah. So, so, um, so, so some college health centers, you pay a fee and you have. I don't know if you have unlimited care, but you get pretty. Um, you can get a full range of services, like at Cornell, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, here at Central Connecticut State University, the, the health centers only open from I think nine to three, and, and with an hour off for lunch. So mm-hmm. if you get sick after after hour or before they're open, then you have to call an ambulance and go go to an emergency room like mm-hmm. any you know anybody else without health insurance. So mm-hmm. it's become because of the cost of of healthcare, it's become harder for everyone, um, but particularly for uninsured young people to get the care that they need. Yeah, I mean and now you're seeing more and more young people with chronic illnesses, with um, disabilities of various sorts. Um, who have all sorts of complex medical needs that um, um, that I don't think are being addressed in a mm-hmm. uh, proper fashion. But mm-hmm. it's that's a product of our um, our. Um, inadequate health system in yeah. the United States in general.
0: Yeah, I was going to actually, that's a good segue to my uh, next question and almost last question. It, it seems to me that these student health services were a kind of incubator for ideas concerning more um, inclusive or expansive care of the individual than many Americans are comfortable with, and we're moving in that direction now. Both presidential candidates have plans to incre- try to increase uh, health insurance coverage among Americans and Mm -hmm. many Americans. Uh, NPR just did a a long series. You may have heard it on health care abroad and inevitably it's Europe and inevitably it's socialized and inevitably theirs look better than ours. Um, Are there any lessons here in the 100-year history, over 100-year history of student health services for Americans thinking about a different kind of health system?
1: Yeah, uh, one of the things that I argue throughout the book is that many of the leaders in in, um, college health were advocating for reform in in medicine more generally and they saw college health centers as a model for providing health care for the population at large Mm -hmm. and there's one fellow John Sunwall, who um, was at various different places, and um, his most of his career was at Michigan. Who were part of um, a group that studied various models for healthcare delivery during the 1920s and 1930s, mm-hmm. and they used college health centers, um, they used company various company health programs um, uh, as models for providing. Universal healthcare and, and really from the early 20th century and almost till the present, the uh, American Medical Association and conservatives said this is socialized medicine, this is communism, this is against the American system of Mm self-reliance and, um, uh, and, um, private healthcare. And Mm so, what we we see now in the early 20th century is, and in the early 21st century is, we're <laughs> we're really in a bad situation. And yeah. I think even um, perhaps some of the more even most hardcore opponents of what some called socialized medicine have come around because mm-hmm. we just can't keep going on like this. And yeah. so I guess the lesson is. Um, you know, maybe we should have started uh, to pursue yeah.
2: alternatives
1: much sooner. I mean, it's just like the environment, right? If we, yeah. <laughs> you know, the right. oil crisis. You know, if we'd listened to Pete, you know, if he'd only listened to Jimmy Carter oh, I, years ago.
0: It's funny you say that because I, you know, I was alive then and I remember, and I'm just like Jimmy yeah. Carter. In, in hindsight, looks like a genius.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Very well, that's, you know. It, but that, in the time, it was, oh, he's he's against the automobile industry. He's right, yeah. going to hurt American Enterprise. And right, now, yeah. now American Enterprise is being hurt because of classic gas. So right. Yeah, well, exactly you know, right. figured out ways to conserve um, 30 years ago. Well, I think so.
0: we can probably say better late than Never. Never being really very hard on us. Well, Heather, you've been uh, very, very generous with your time today. We've spent a lot of it. We really, really appreciate having you on the show. Let me uh, close the interview with our traditional question. That is, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm continuing my interest in women's health issues, and um, I'm working on a book on the history of emergency contraception. And Hmm. emergency contraception has a longer history than most people are aware of. Typically, the focus has been on development of Plan B, of um, recent debates with the FDA to get over-the-counter approval for Plan B and so forth. Mm -hmm. But the origins of emergency contraception go back to the 1960s and is tied in with the larger history of contraception, uh, hormonal contraception in general. So I'm working on that and that's I just got a advanced contract with Rutgers oh, great. University yeah. Press.
0: Oh, That's terrific. For that, it's always a lot easier to write when you know where it's going to be published. At least that's yes. my experience. <laughs> I <laughs> right. write these so. things on spec, and I'm just not, you know, I just yeah. it's harder to get up in the morning. Yeah. yeah. You don't know it's going to, well, again, thank you very much for appearing on the show, and we hope we have you on the show again when you're done with that book.
1: Okay, you're very welcome. You're I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Well, good. I'm glad you did. Uh, thanks very much again, and I'll talk to you later. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Heather Prescott, the author of Student Bodies, the Influence of Student Health Services in American Society and Medicine. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope that you have a good week. And I hope to talk to you next week.